You're listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit centurybaptist.org or download the Century Baptist Church app. When you stay standing and grab your Bibles, we're going to move right into our time today. If you don't have time to quick draw your Bible, it's going to be up on the screen here. The passage is Matthew 18, verse 7. We're going to jump right into this uh, very challenging topic today of temptations to sin. Jesus says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. You may be seated. Talking about temptation today, as I'm kind of preparing and studying, I kind of realize how much temptation is everywhere around us all the time. I mean, just think about what a commercial is on TV. A commercial is literally a temptation. I'm not saying it's sinful, but it's trying to get you to want something that you didn't want before you watched that commercial. Or to maybe want something differently than the thing that you have. It's enticing you to, to motivate uh, your behavior in a certain direction. It's a temptation. So not all, tem- not all these commercials are sin, although it does seem sinful the amount of commercials they can squeeze into one half of football sometimes. But today we're going to talk about when Jesus talks about temptations and what that means. We're going to talk about the root of temptation and the response we need to take to temptation. So first of all, in verse 7 of our passage, Jesus says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but... Woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So that word woe shows up a couple times here. What does that mean? He's talking about God's impending judgment against sin and everyone who causes people to sin. That's what he's setting it up here. Woe. Judgment is coming. So we need to pay attention. When he says woe, what is, it, what is he saying woe about? He says woe to the world. Now the world in the Bible can have a bunch of different meanings. So we have to discern what it means in this context. It can talk about the earth in general. It can talk about all the people in the earth. Sometimes the world talks about, separates unbelievers from believers, uh, Christians from non-Christians. Sometimes it talks about worldly systems. Whenever it talks about the world in this way, it's linked with what we call the three main enemies of God and the church, which are the world, the devil, and the flesh. These are the three primary enemies of God and his kingdom. We find these outlined in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes it very clearly and succinctly in verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. So the course of this world is a course of death and sin. That's our first enemy. Then he goes on, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's Our second enemy, Satan, the devil. The third enemy is, verse 3, among whom we all lived, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. This is our third enemy. So how do we summarize these enemies? The world, first of all. Human cultures dominated by sinful values that are opposed to God and his kingdom. That's what he means by the world. First, in 1 John, the Apostle John outlines kind of how we think about where the world fits in here. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. So John's saying that there's the stuff 
the things of the world, and then there's the system, the influences of the world. Don't love either of them because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So loving the world is the opposite of loving the Father. He's setting them against each other. Then he describes it. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. This is the source of and the result of temptation and sin. This is not from the Father, but from the world. So when he's talking about woe to the world, he's talking about the source of temptation, first of all from the world, then the devil, who is Satan. That's pretty self-explanatory. Satan hates God. He hates God's people. He loves death. He loves spiritual death. He loves to ensnare people in sin. He loves to blind them to the gospel. And he wants to ensure, if he can, their eternal punishment. Satan is real. Demons are real. And they hate you. They hate the church. They hate God. And they're at war with us. The third enemy is the flesh. This is the sinful human nature that's inclined toward gratifying sinful fleshly human desires. So let's review human nature, how that works. So when you're a non-Christian, before, actually everybody who's born is born with a sinful nature. That means your position and your practice is sinful. You're born in sin, meaning that you have the condemnation of sin because of Adam and Eve. You're in sin, and, and you deserve to you deserve the consequence and the punishment for that sin. So you're in sin, but we also actively sin. That's what it means to be in the flesh. When God saves you, he changes your position from being in sin to being in Christ. And he gradually changes your practice to reflect more and more to be like Christ. So when we talk about the na human nature, we have the old nature and we have the new nature. There's a new creation. There's a new life that you have. It's empowered by and enlivened by the Spirit. Uh, Galatians 5 talks about this. He says, don't walk by in the flesh, walk in the Spirit. They are opposed to each other. So these three enemies, the world, the devil, and the flesh, are included in when he's talking about everything that causes temptation. Woe to the world, woe to the enemies of God, for the temptation comes from you. There's going to be judgment for those sin and temptation. So that's the setup. But let's take a minute and define temptation. What does temptation mean? In order to do that, we need to compare and contrast it with trials and testing. Because sometimes temptations and trials and testing get kind of lumped together. So in some ways they overlap, but they are distinct. So we'll go to the book of James, chapter 1. If you want to turn there in your Bible, I'll have the verses on the screen if you want to follow along there. James outlines for us the differences between these. Now pay attention to the motivation and the desired outcome. So what does he say? James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So there's two things here. He says, even in the midst of trial, you can have joy. So the joy is not because of the trial. You don't need to be happy that something bad is happening to you. But you can have joy in the midst of it. And then he has that little word, when. It doesn't say if, it says when. The assumption is, for people who are walking with God, that there will be trials. What is the definition of these trials? For you know that these trials lead to the testing of your faith, which produces steadfastness. So the purpose of the trial is to test your faith and to strengthen it, to make it steadfast and firm. Then he says, what does steadfastness do? Well, that has a full effect. When you bring that to full effect, it produces uh, perfection and completion lacking in nothing. That's the motivation and the desired outcome for testing and trial. He goes on in verse 12. If you skip down to verse 12, 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So James is defining what this means. A test or a trial is a situation that God either allows or initiates. He does both in Scripture. He allows trials, he initiates trials and testing for the purpose of helping his people grow stronger in their faith and grow closer to him. That's the desired outcome of a test and a trial. How does that contrast with temptation? He goes on in verse 13. That one, that let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So here's the distinction. Trials and tests can come from God. They're allowed by him or they're initiated by him. If you have a temptation, never comes from God. That's the first statement. Then he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Those are words that are actually fishing terms. So you get a hook or you have a bait and you lure or you entice them by your own evil desire. When desire gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth and brings forth death. So, you see the clear distinction between the desired outcome and the motivation between testing and trials and temptation. A test or a trial draws us closer to God. Temptation is initiated by the world, the devil, or our flesh for the purpose of enticing us to sin and pushing us away from God. Now, you may be tempted to sin in the midst of a trial or a test, but that does not come from God. That's from the enemy attempting to corrupt God's good purposes for the testing of our faith. So that's a temptation, where it comes from. But now let's talk about how it works. How does temptation work? What does it look like? And believe me, I cannot cover all of the different ways that temptation comes after us. But here's some thoughts. Temptation can be direct and it can be indirect. It can be kind of a frontal targeted attack or it can be kind of indirect influence or pressure. So a direct attack would be seducing someone to sin or trying to talk someone into sinning with you or trying to trap you in sin or entrap you in sinful behavior, expose you to sinful things. That's a direct attack. It can be indirect. It can have kind of influence or pressure. The pressure of the fear of not being accepted. The fear of not being on the right side of history. Um, you can be deceived by the general approval or celebration of sinful behavior around you. And you can be deceived to think that that is okay. It's fine. I don't have to res resist that because it's generally accepted. You can be deceived in that way. You can also be swept along by kind of enthusiasm or excitement about something. And you may not even realize that the temptation is coming. Like, even at a baseball game, if there's thousands of people there, even a casual fan, if there's something exciting that happens, is going to stand up and be cheering. I don't have no idea what's going on, but everyone's excited, so I'm going to be excited too. You get swept up in the moment. Temptation can come in those moments of, of enthusiasm or excitement, being swept up in the moment with a bunch of people following wherever it leads you. Think about water, okay? Water is very powerful. It can be powerful like a power washer is powerful, you, you, you push it through a very tiny opening, and it's very powerful. But so is the Missouri River. Completely different way, but equally as powerful and destructive. Temptations come in a variety of ways. Sometimes very specific and targeted. Sometimes it's very general. We need to be aware of both. 
I think this is how the modern culture that is opposed to God, opposed to the church and God's word, is attacking the church. Because right now in this country, you can't just come after the church with a frontal assault because we're protected for now under the Constitution. So the strategy then, I think, is to just slowly raise the water level around. Everything's okay. Everything's fine. We're accepting all sorts of things. And the culture is just wanting to creep in until the water gets too high. That's the strategy. We need to know that. We need to be aware of that. Just because it's not a frontal attack doesn't mean the attack isn't there. You'll be tempted in weakness and in strength. You'll be tempted when you're weak to say, why do I deserve this? I don't know. What is God doing to me? I don't, I don't deserve any of this. In weakness. You'll be tempted in strength. I don't need anybody. I'm fine. I'm comfortable. Certainly don't need God. No matter where you are, you'll be tempted. You'll be tempted to turn good things into sinful obsessions. Satan loves to take good things and corrupt them or make them too prominent in our minds and our hearts to, do, to occupy too much of our affections. That's a source of temptation. You'll be attacked in every area of vulnerability in your life. You can be assured of that. And it doesn't really matter. You don't really have to take a lot of time to, is this coming from Satan or from the world or from my flesh? Or really? It doesn't matter. Satan energizes the world to resonate with your flesh to lead you into sin. They all work together and they all need to be defeated. So temptations have a variety of, don't just look for one way. Be aware, be watchful. Jesus includes this very thought-provoking phrase in verse 7. I just want to touch on it here because it says, it is necessary that temptations come. Why would he say that? It seems like, okay, wouldn't it be easier if you just, temptation, Satan, evil, just, just do away with it. The ultimate purposes for the ongoing existence of sin and temptation, of evil in this world, is we have to trust God in his good will and his good and, and perfect purposes. We have to trust him. So I just have a few thoughts about why he might say that temptations must come. The continued presence and activity of, of the sinful world is part of his design, is part of his plan to glorify Christ and to sanctify his people. Every victory over sin and temptation glorifies Jesus' work on the cross. When sin is defeated, Christ is magnified. Every time. When a believer resists temptation and defeats sin, it shows that they prefer what God has to offer than what the world has to offer. It shows that they see God as more beautiful, more valuable, more desirable, more satisfying than anything else. So, according to God's providence, the daily defeat of temptations and sin in the life of the believer is more glorifying to God than the elimination of temptations in the world. And we need to trust God that he knows what he's doing. And, and don't forget those two words in that first verse. Woe. Meaning, God is not just up there like, ah, there's not much I can do about this. This is crazy. He is storing up his wrath. And no sin will go unpunished, either by the sinner or by the Savior, for those who have received salvation through Christ. 
So the root of temptation, the world, the devil, the flesh, are constantly working to entice people to gratify their sinful desires and to turn away from God. That's the source of temptation. Let's move on to the response. Well, how do we respond to this? Because then in verse 8 and 9, he says, all right, well, if your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to sin, cut them off. Pluck it out. It's better that you enter into life with one hand or one eye or one foot than to be sent to hell. This is graphic, drastic language. And it's intended to be. Jesus is intending to amplify how serious sin is, how serious your enemies are, and how severe the response needs to be. Okay, does, does Jesus actually mean that cutting off your hand or cutting off your foot or poking out your eye will actually solve the problem? Is that what he's saying? That that's it? Then you'll stop sinning? He's using both hyperbole and metaphor, meaning he's using extreme examples to show how severe this issue is, but he's also using symbolic descriptions. Now we know, and the Bible clearly shows us, that just cutting off the hand doesn't stop you from sinning. If you take a thief and you take his hand and you cut off his hand, I mean, obviously that'll hurt, but inside they're probably laughing. <laughs> and why are you laughing? Well, because I know something you don't. I'm not left-handed. I can steal with my right hand. If they got both hands, they'll figure out a way to steal with no hands. It doesn't solve the problem. So he's not saying this is the solution. In Mark 7, Jesus clearly says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, this is that sinful nature, that's the flesh, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Any sin you can think of is in that list. All these things, these evil things come from within. They defile a person. So he's not contradicting himself, saying, actually, the sin is in your hand. If you take care of that, you're good to go. So the, the metaphor here is, I th we think he's using the hand and the foot and the eye to describe categories of sins, meaning the hand, the physical sins, when you, when you commit a sin against somebody, murder, anger, uh, stealing from someone. Defeat talks about taking yourself, where you go to participate in sinful behaviors. Your eyes, those are internal sins of envy and covetousness and lust. The response, he's saying, get rid of it, move it, remove it, avoid the opportunity, take drastic measures if you have to. This is not just try to do better next time, try harder, try to cut back a little bit if you can, if it's convenient. He's saying take decisive, drastic action. But I can't do my job without this phone. You can figure out a way. Is it worth it? I can't cancel cable. What are my kids going to watch? Well, the, that bar is the pl where all my friends go, so if I stop going, maybe you need to find a different place or new friends. Well, I know that she's still working at that job, but what am I going to do, quit my job? We're talking about life and death. We're talking about eternity. What's it worth? 
I always drive by that place every time I'm on my way home. Take a different route home. There's a scene in the movie, it's called Fireproof, a few years ago, where the main character is so frustrated with his sexual temptation in the computer, he takes his computer out back and just destroys it with a baseball bat. It's very visual, it's very helpful. Drastic. Now, that doesn't solve the problem. That wasn't the only computer in the world. Which is why the Bible makes clear that decisive, sometimes drastic outward action must be accompanied by genuine inward transformation. Otherwise, it doesn't work. You can do all the outward things on the surface that you want. If the heart doesn't change, that's where the sin comes from. That's where the temptation ultimately comes from. Which leads us to the next question, which is, who is this warning for? If you look at the context of this, he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers. But he says, if you don't respond to sin and temptation drastically, you're going to go to hell. Okay, wait. How does that work then if he's talking to believers? Let's back up a second. The Bible uses both commands and warnings in Scripture to help us persevere in our faith and reach the goal, which is seeing Jesus face to face. Okay? Commands and warnings. So commands are instructions. They're how to walk in wisdom and in holiness. We have those all over the Bible. They're imperatives, commands. We see them everywhere and we need to obey them. Warnings are reminders about the consequences of not going in the right direction. If you get off track, that's a warning. So if you're driving, the commands are like the road signs, 20 miles to your destination, speed limit, exit ahead. Those are the commands. The warnings are the rumble strips on the side. When you get off a little bit to the side, stay on the road. That's the warning. Both of them are used, commands and warnings, by God in Scripture to help keep us on track. So the warning here for believers, for true Christians, is that you need to take sin and temptation very seriously. You need to respond drastically and follow Jesus so that your lives are fruitful and effective. That's what he's trying to choke out. Satan's trying to choke out your effectiveness, your fruitfulness. If he can take you out and make you miserable, you're not going to affect anyone else. You're not going to share the gospel with anybody. So the warning is, and the instructions are, to keep us fruitful and effective and make sure that our reward and our growth is not stunted. Jesus essentially is saying, if you have one hand, it doesn't matter because you get the full reward. You're giving up something the world thinks is valuable to gain something that God says is valuable, and it's worth it. No matter what, you need to, no matter what step you need to take, no matter how drastic. Everyone who is truly saved, this is a reminder about your salvation, everyone who is truly saved will increasingly obey the road signs and avoid the warning signs and will reach your destination. This is God's promise. If you have been justified by his grace, declared righteous by the work of Christ, you will be sanctified, being made more like him throughout your life until the moment you see Jesus and you're glorified. That is a promise. That is an unbroken chain for all who have truly been saved by the grace of God. You find that in Romans 8, specifically verse 30. So the, the alternate reality then, if we think about this, 
for someone who claims to be a Christian or says they're a Christian or comes to church or wants to identify somehow with Christianity, but if they continue in willful rebellion against God, in unrepentant sin, basically, I am not interested in, in resisting temptation and sin. I'm all in, both hands. Even if someone claims to be a Christian, what that shows is not that they lose their salvation, but that they were never saved in the first place. They've not been redeemed. They've not been given the new creation to live and walk in faith and holiness. He's, Jesus says, your two hands will do you no good because you'll be punished for your sin. Drastic response now equals full reward later. Indulgence now means punishment and suffering later. That's the warning. And the warning for us is to stay on the road. So since he's talking to believers, we know that this is the battle for sanctification, not salvation. He's talking about you staying on track. And it comes back to that struggle between the new self and the old self. Ephesians 4 talks about this very clearly. It says in verse 22, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. This is the old nature. He's describing it very graphically. This is your sinful nature. He says, put it off. Literally, take it off and throw it away. Cast it away. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self. This is the new creation, the new nature, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the interchange that must happen, the inside change that must happen along with the outward response. So when he says putting off the old self, he means rejecting the world, the devil, the flesh, rejecting the temptations, defeating sin. Putting on the new self is obeying God, following his word, living in the power of the Spirit, and walking in righteousness and holiness. God uses this warning to help ensure that we stay faithful and receive our reward. The objective of our enemies is to destroy and corrupt as much as they possibly can while they can. They know that they don't have any claim on the souls of believers, those who have been sealed, but they will do everything they can to destroy, corrupt, deceive, make everything good, bad, turn everything that's wonderful and beautiful in this world to corrupted and corroded. This is not a game. It's a war. You can't negotiate with this enemy. You can't appease this enemy. You can't make peace with this enemy. Uh, some people think this is it's too aggressive. You can't talk like this. It's too risky. But as the great prophet Aragorn once said, open war is upon you whether you would risk it or not. We have to have a wartime mentality when it comes to fighting sin and temptation. Because the war is upon us, whether we would like it or risk it or want it or not. And we need to respond accordingly. So, to help us, I hope it's helpful, I have three words for it. Three words can be very powerful. When I was a kid, I learned three words I remember to this day. Stop, drop, and roll. You know those three words? 
They've stuck with me. I know exactly what that means. I don't know if my three words are quite as catchy, but they are. Defend, duck, and destroy. We'll see. You tell me if they're helpful or not. Defend, duck, and destroy. First of all, defend. The first thing we need to do is strengthen your defenses against attack. Identify your weaknesses and shore them up. If you're in a war, you need to know where you're weak and strengthen your defense. It's just obvious. How do we do that? There are dozens and dozens of ways the Bible tells us of how to strengthen ourselves, to strengthen our faith against the attack of sin and temptation. I'm going to go through a few very, very quick. They're going to be on the screen. You can probably write down these verses if you want to go back to them. Take a photo of it if you want. The purpose is not to go deeply into these, but just to show you. You've been given everything you need. Okay, first of all, spiritual disciplines. Are you reading, studying, memorizing, meditating on the Word of God and praying? That's the basic ground-level defense. That's what Jesus did when he was tempted in Matthew 4. How did he respond to temptation and lies? With the truth of Scripture. That's the first line of defense. Do you know and claim the promises of God? and their power? Do you develop habits in your life of walking in the light and not in darkness? Do you put on the armor of God? That's an entire chapter almost of describing exactly this. He has given you everything you need to defend yourself. And it actually says to stand firm against the enemy. James says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resisting requires action. It's not passive. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says, do not be ignorant of his schemes, meaning this isn't just mindless. There's a strategy. They're coming after you. They're trying to take you out. You have to have a strategy to defend yourself and fight back. can't be ignorant of the schemes and strategies of the enemy. Peter says, be watchful and sober-minded. Think clearly about this. Don't try to fool yourself into thinking it's not really happening. And watch. So the first step has to be defend. Set up your life in a way that defends against sin and temptation. The second one is duck. Okay, so you you got your fortress, and you're looking over and you see someone take an arrow and put it in their bow and point it at you. Duck. Okay. The temptation, okay, so the Bible talks about fiery darts. So the temptation, you see it. Duck. If you don't duck, what happens? You get shot. Now you could come up with all sorts of excuses and all sorts of reasons why you thought that temptation looked interesting, but they all end up with you getting shot. And the Bible says... You only get shot, meaning you only give in to sin and temptation when you choose not to look. In fact, the promise is you always have time to duck. I'll show you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So that phrase, the way of escape in the original Greek, is duck. I'm just kidding. It's not. (laughs) 
When temptation comes, when you see temptation, turn away. Don't respond. Don't click. Don't retaliate. Don't go there. And definitely do not look again. If you duck, there's more coming. If you poke your head up, you're going to get shot in the face. So don't look twice. The promise is, even if you see temptation, and it's all around you, if some days are worse than others, you always have a way of escape. You can always duck. Now the reality is that sometimes we don't duck. Sometimes we see the temptation, we're enticed by it, and we get shot. That's the reality. For those who have been saved by the grace of God and redeemed by the blood of Christ, that does not mean you lose your salvation, but you still got shot. There's still consequences. Sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's relational. There's still consequences for sin. But even though there are consequences, there's also the promise of healing. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, and this is the ongoing, present tense, if we continue to confess, to repent our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This is relationing with God. When we sin, we affect our relationship to God. He doesn't kick us out, but it affects our relationship. We confess our sins. He's faithful to forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness, meaning the next time you see the guy point the arrow at you, you duck. That's what he promises. So, build up your defenses. If you see temptation, duck. And the last one is destroy. This is severe. This is serious. John Owen said, he's a Puritan from a long time ago, his famous quote is, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Translation, if you know where temptation is coming from, don't just sit there and take it. Take it out. Decisively, definitively. The Bible uses very aggressive language to talk about our fight against sin. Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That phrase, put to death, is to mortify, to kill. If you kill the deeds of the flesh, it's the most extreme word they can use. Colossians 3 says the same thing. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, all of it, idolatry. Put it to death. Respond severely and decisively. I've seen, many, I've seen too many times, way too many times, when people play games with sin. And it absolutely wreaks havoc in their lives, in their relationships, in their families, in churches. So I know I need to stop, but, but, there's always a but. Jesus just doesn't leave room for excuses. The response might be drastic, but it's worth it. The only solution is decisive external action accompanied by genuine internal transformation. Let me give us some warning signs. These are just some warning signs. If you see some of these in your life or lives of others, that you may not be taking sin seriously enough. You may not be at war with sin. You may be trying to make peace with sin or appease sin or kind of get along with it instead of making war. 
So some warning signs. I can't think of all of them, of course, but here's a few. If you find yourself making excuses to kind of justify your behavior, if you see the excuses keep popping up, that's a warning sign. If you have to talk yourself into something or out of something against your conscience, that's a warning sign. If you're getting overly specific talking about your behavior, if it's borderline, you're like being very specific, or if you're trying to focus on a technicality, that's a warning sign. If you compare your sin to others and kind of think, and you kind of, well, I'm nowhere near as bad as that guy, so I must be doing okay. Warning sign. If you say, I can quit any time, warning sign. Because you, you didn't. You haven't. If you, can, if you say, it's not hurting anyone else, it is. Trust me. Some people might think, well, I've never heard the pastor say that it was wrong from the pulpit. As if I can say everything in every situation that's wrong. I had a lady, this quick story, there was a lady called in a little while ago. Well, first of all, she asked to talk to a priest, which is always super fun. I love those calls. Can I talk to a priest, please? All right, let's talk. Sure. She literally said on the phone, <clears throat> yeah, I'm wondering what the rule is about when I can start dating again because when I'm in the process of a divorce, but it's taking longer than I thought it would, so when can I start dating? And I'm using the word dating. She said a different word. I'm going to keep it family-friendly here. <laughs> dating, Okay. You catch my drift? And she wanted to know what the rule was when she could start dating again. She did not get the answer from me she was hoping for. Let's put it that way. I gave her the gospel and said, I said, okay, what we need to talk about is, you know, how you're approaching marriage, but your, your, your relationship with Jesus is the bottom line of this. And, we're, and I gave the gospel, and I poured it out for her. And she listened, I think. And when I was done, I said, is there any questions? And she said, well, so when do you think I can start dating again? Because the divorce is like, oh. <laughs> Have you heard the one about chopping off your hand? Let's talk about that. <laughs> I'm never calling that priest again. <laughs> I've never heard the pastor say it was wrong. Or, I can't find that sin listed in the Bible. There's no Bible verse that says, thou shalt not live together with your boyfriend. So, it must be fine. There's no verse that says, thou shalt not commit secondary degree tax evasion. So, must be good. Warning signs. Don't play games with sin. You're lying to yourself. You're putting yourself right where the enemy wants you. You're playing right into his hands. It's not a time for compromise. not a time for half measures. It's a time for all-out war against the world, the devil, and the flesh. It's hard. It's hard, but it's worth it. I want to end with what Peter says about this whole situation and how he encourages us. 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 8, he says, Be sober-minded and watchful, meaning have your eyes open about this. You have to know that this is going on. Don't deceive yourselves. Don't put your head in the sand. Be watchful. Be mindful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to distract Seeking someone to annoy. Do you really believe that Satan is out for your very life? Do you really believe that this is for keeps? Like he wants you done. 
He's seeking to devour you. Peter says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by everybody, all your brothers throughout the world. There's a common enemy, and we fight it together. What's the reward? Verse 10. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He knows that we're in a battle, but he also knows who wins the war. He wants us to walk in victory every single day. Every victory over sin and temptation glorifies Christ and purifies us. And we can do that. We can walk in that victory if we rely upon his grace. If his grace is sufficient for us, then his promise is we will endure and have victory with him forever. Let's pray. Lord, what a tremendous passage to remind us of the severity of the situation, how serious you are for us, how you want us to take sin and temptation very, very seriously, and how drastic you want the response to be by just imploring us, begging us to see giving up something now will be worth it for eternity. You're giving up something the world thinks is valuable and gaining something that God says is valuable. Help us to see what is truly valuable, what's truly, what's truly a treasure, what truly matters.